Part two of chapter three of Animal Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Part two, chapter three of Animal Ghosts by Elliot O'Donnell. Another experience of haunting by the same animal was told me by a Chelsea artist who assured me it was absolutely true. I append it as nearly as possible in his own words. Heralds of Death It is many years ago, he began, since I came into my property, Heatherley Hall, near Carlisle, Cumberland. It was left me by my great-uncle, General Winpole, whom I have never seen, but who made me his heir in preference to his other nephews, owing to my reputed likeness to an aunt, to whom he was greatly attached. Of course I was much envied, and I dare say a good many unkind things were said about me, but I did not care. Heatherly Hall was mine, and I had as much right to it as anyone else. I came there alone. My two brothers, Dick and Hal, the one a soldier and the other a sailor, were both away on foreign service, whilst Beryl, my one and only sister, was staying with her fiancé's family in Bath never shall i forget my first impressions depict the day an october afternoon the air mellow the leaves yellow and the sun a golden red not a trace of clouds or wind anywhere everything serene and still a broad highway a wood a lodge in the midst of the wood large iron gates a broad carriage drive planted on either side with lofty pines and elms whose gnarled and forked branches threw grotesque and not altogether pleasing shadows on the pale gravel at the end of the avenue at least a quarter of a mile long wide expanses of soft velvety grass interspersed at regular intervals with plots of flowers dahlias daisies no longer in their first bloom chrysanthemums etc beyond the lawn the house and beyond that again and on either side big old-fashioned gardens of full of fruit fruit of all kinds some such as grapes and peaches in monster greenhouses and others luscious pears oranges golden pippins etc in rich profusion in the open the whole encompassed by a high and solid brick wall topped with a bed of mortar and broken glass the house which was built or rather faced with split flints and edged with buttressed and cut gray stone had a majestic but gloomy appearance its front lofty and handsome was somewhat castellated in style two semicircular bows or half moons placed at a suitable distance from each other rising from the base to the summit of the edifice these were pierced at every floor with rows of stone mullioned windows rising to the height of four or five stories the flat wall between had larger windows lighting the great hall gallery and upper apartments these windows were abundantly ornamented with stained glass representing the arms honors and alms deeds of the wimpole family the towers half included in the building were completely circular within and contained the winding stair of the mansion and whoso ascended them when the winter wind was blowing seemed rising by a tornado to the clouds 
midway between the towers was a heavy stone porch with a gothic gateway surmounted by a battlemented parapet made gable fashion the apex of which was garnished by a pair of dolphins rampant and antagonistic whose corkscrew tails seemed contorted by the last agonies of rage convulsed the porch doors thrown open to receive me led into a hall wide vaulted and lofty and decorated here and there with remnants of tapestry and grim portraits of the wimpoles one picture in particular riveted my attention hung in an obscure corner where the light rarely penetrated it represented the head and shoulders of a young man with a strikingly beautiful face the features small and regular like those of a woman the hair yellow and curly it was the eyes that struck me most they followed me everywhere i went with a persistency that was positively alarming there was something in them i had never seen in canvas eyes before something deeper and infinitely more intricate than could be produced by mere paint something human and yet not human friendly and yet not friendly something baffling enigmatical haunting i inquired of my deceased relative's aged housekeeper mrs grimstone whom i had retained whose portrait it was and she replied with a scared look horace youngest son of sir algernon wimpole who died here in seventeen forty five the face fascinates me i said is there any history attached to it why yes sir she responded her eyes fixed on the floor but the late master never liked referring to it is it as bad as that i said laughing tell me well sir she began they do say as how sir algernon who was a thorough county squire very fond of hunting and shooting and all sorts of manly exercises never liked mr horace who was delicate and dandified what the folk in those days used to style a macaroni the climax came when mr horace took up with the jacobites sir algernon would have nothing more to do with him then and turned him adrift one day there was a great commotion in the neighborhood the government troops were hunting the place in search of rebels and who should come galloping up the avenue with a couple of troopers in hot pursuit but mr horace the noise brought out sir algernon and he was infuriated to think that his son was the cause of the disturbance a disgraceful young cub he called him that despite mr horace's entreaties for protection he ran through him with his sword it was a dreadful thing for a father to do and sir algernon bitterly repented it his wife who had been devoted to mr horace left him and at last in a fit of despondency he hanged himself out there on one of the elms lining the avenue it is still standing ever since then they do say that the wood is haunted and that before the death of any member of the family mr horace is seen galloping along the old carriage drive <laughs> pleasant i grunted and how about the house is it haunted too i daresn't say she murmured some will tell you it is and some will tell you it isn't in which category are you included i asked well she said i have lived here happy and comfortable forty-five years the day after tomorrow, and that speaks for itself don't it and with that she hobbled off and showed me the way to the dining-room 
what a house it was from the hall proceeded doorways and passages more than the ordinary memory could retain of these portals one at each end conducted to the tower stairs others to the reception rooms and domestic offices in the right wing besides bedrooms galore was a lofty and spacious picture gallery in the left a chapel for the wimpoles were formerly roman catholics the general fittings and furniture both of the hall and the house in general were substantial venerable and strongly corroborative of what mrs grimstone hinted at they suggested ghosts the walls lined with black oak panels or dark hangings that fluttered mysteriously each time the wind blew were funereal indeed and so high and narrow were the windows that little was to be discerned through them but cross-barred portions of the sky one spot in particular appealed to my nerves and that a long vaulted stone passage leading from a morning room to the foot of the back staircase here the voice and even the footsteps echoed with a hollow low response and often when i have been hurrying along it i never dared walk slowly i have fancied and maybe it was more than fancy i have been pursued time passed and from being merely used to my new environments i grew to take a pride in them to love them i made the acquaintance of several of my neighbors those i deemed the most desirable and on returning from wintering abroad brought home a bride a young polish girl who added luster to the surroundings and in no small degree helped to dissipate the gloom indeed had it not been for the picture in the hall and for the twilight shadows and twilight footsteps in the stone passage i should soon have ceased to think of ghosts ghosts forsooth when all around me vibrated with sounds of girlish laughter and the summer sunshine sparkling on the golden curls of my child wife saw itself reflected a million fold in the alluring depths of her azure eyes in halcyon days like these who thinks of ghosts and death and yet it is in just such times as these that hell is nearest there came a night in august when the air was so hot and sultry that i could scarcely breathe and unable to bear the atmosphere of the house and the gardens any longer i sought the coolness of the wood olga my wife did not accompany me as she was suffering from a slight thank god it was only slight sunstroke it was close on midnight and there was a dead stillness abroad that seemed as if it must be universal as if it enveloped the whole of nature I tried to realize London, to depict the Strand and Piccadilly, aglow with artificial light and reverberating with the roll of countless traffic and the tread of millions of feet. I failed. The incongruity of such imaginings here, here amidst omnipotent silence, rendered such thoughts impossible. A leaf rustled, and its rustling sounded to my ears like the gentle closing of some giant door. A twig fell and I turned sharply round, convinced I should see a pile of broken debris. I love all trees, but I love them best by day. To me, it seems that night utterly metamorphizes them, brings out in them a subtler, darker side one would little suspect. Here, in this oak, for instance, was an example. In the morning, one sees in it naught but quiet dignity, venerable old age, benevolence, 
and by reason of the ample protection its branches afford from the sun, charity and philanthropy. Its leaves are bright, dainty, pretty. Its trunk suggests nothing but a cozy and soothing retreat for students and lovers. But now, see how different. These great spreading, gnarled branches are hands, claws, monstrous and menacing. Those leaves, no longer bright, remind me of a hearse's plumes. Their rustling, of the rustling and switching of a pall or winding sheet. The trunk, black, sinuous, towering, is assuredly no piece of timber, but something pulpy, something intangible, something antagonistic, mystic devilish i turn from it and shudder then my mind reverts to the elm the elm on which sir algernon hanged himself i remember it is not more than twenty yards from where i stand i stare down at the soil at the clumps of crested dog's tail and stray blades of succulent darnel i force my attention on a toadstool whose soft and lowly head gleams sickly white in the moonbeams I glance from it to a sleeping, close-capped dandelion, from it to a thistle, from it again to a late bush vetch, and then, willy-nilly, to the accursed elm. My God, what a change! It wasn't like that when I passed it at noon. It was just an ordinary tree then. But now? Now? And what is that, that sinister bundle, suspended from one of its curling branches? A cold sweat bursts out on me. My knees tremble. My hair begins to rise on end. Swinging round, I am about to rush away, blindly rush away, hither, thither, anywhere, anywhere out of sight of that tree and of all the hideous possibilities it promises to materialize for me. I have not taken five strides, however, before I am pulled sharply up by the sounds of horses' hoofs of hoofs on the hard gravel away in the distance. They speedily grow nearer. A horse is galloping, galloping towards me along the broad carriage drive. Nearer, nearer, and nearer it comes. Who is it? What is it? A deadly nausea seizes me. I swerve, totter, reel, and am only prevented from falling by the timely interference of a pine. The concussion with its leviathan trunk clears my senses. All my faculties become wonderfully and painfully alert. I would give my very soul if it were not so, if I could but fall asleep or faint. The sound of the hoofs is very much nearer now, so near indeed that I may see the man. Heaven grant it may be only a man after all, any moment. Ah! My heart gives a great sickly jerk. Something has shot into view. There, not fifty yards from me, where the road curves and the break in the foliage overhead admits a great flood of moonlight, I recognize the thing at once. It's not a man. It's nothing human. It's the picture I know so well and dread so much. The portrait of Horace Wimpole that hangs in the main hall and it's mounted on a coal-black horse with wildly flying mane and foaming mouth. On and on they come, thud, thud, thud. The man is not dressed as a rider, but is wearing the costume in the picture, i.e., that of a macaroni, a nut, more fit for a lady seminary than a fine old English mansion. Something beside me rustles, 
rustles angrily, and I know, I can feel, it is the bundle on the branch, the ghastly, groaning, creaking, croaking caricature of Sir Algernon. The horseman comes up to me, our eyes meet, I am looking in those of a dead, of a long-since dead man. My blood freezes. He flashes past me, thud, 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 a bend in the road, and he vanishes from sight. But I can still hear him, still hear the mad patter of his horse's hoofs as they bear him onward, lifeless, fleshless, weightless, to his ancient home. God pity the souls that know no rest. How I got back to the house I hardly know. I believe it was with my eyes shut, and I am certain I ran all the way. About four o'clock the following afternoon, I received a cablegram from Malta. Intuition warned me to prepare for the worst. Its contents were unpleasantly short and pithy. Hal drowned at two o'clock this morning. Dick. Two years passed, again an August night, hot and oppressive as before, and again, though surely against my will, my better judgment, if you like, I visited the wood, Horses' hoofs, just the same as before. The same galloping, the same figure, the same eyes. The same mad, panic-stricken flight home. And early in the succeeding afternoon, a similar cablegram, this time from Sicily. Dick died at midnight, dysentery. Andrews. Jack Andrews was Dick's pal, his bosom friend. So once again the phantom rider had brought its grisly message, played its ghoulish role. My brothers were both dead now, and only Beryl remained. Another year sped by, and the last night in October, a Monday, saw me impaled by a fascination I could not resist, once again in the wood. Up to a point, everything happened as before. As the monotonous church clock struck twelve, from afar came the sound of hoofs, nearer, 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 and then with startling abruptness the rider shot into view, and now, mixed with the awful, indescribable terror the figure always conveyed with it, came a feeling of intense rage and indignation. Should Beryl, Beryl whom I loved next best to my wife, be torn from me even as Dick and Hal had been? No, ten thousand times no. Sooner than that, I would risk anything. A sudden inspiration, coming maybe from the whispering leaves or from the elm or from the mysterious flickering moonbeams, flashed through me. Could I not intercept the figures, drive them back? By doing so, something told me Beryl might be saved. A terrible struggle at once took place within me, and it was only after the most desperate efforts that I, at length, succeeded in fighting back my terror and flung myself out into the middle of the drive. No words of mine can describe all I went through as I stood there anticipating the arrival of the phantoms. At length they came right up to me, and, as with frantic resolution, I screwed up the courage to plant myself directly in their path and stared up into the rider's eyes. The huge steed halted, gave one shrill neigh, and turning round, galloped back again, disappearing whither it had emerged. Two days afterwards, I received a letter from my brother-in-law. I have been having an awful time, 
he wrote. My darling Beryl has been frightfully ill. On Monday night, we gave up all hope of her recovery. But at twelve o'clock, when the doctor bid us prepare for the end, the most extraordinary thing happened. Turning over in bed, she distinctly called out your name and rallied. And now, thank God, she is completely out of danger. The doctor says it is the most astonishing recovery he has ever known. That is twenty years ago, and I've not seen the phantom rider since, nor do I fancy he will appear again, for when I look into the eyes of the picture in the hall, they are no longer wandering, but at rest. Perhaps one of the most interesting accounts of the phantasm of a horse in my possession is that recorded by C.E.G., a friend of my boyhood. Writing to me from the United States some months ago, he says, Knowing how interested you are in all cases of hauntings, and in those relating to animal ghosts, especially, I am sending you an account of an experience that happened to my uncle, Mr. John Dale, about six months ago. He was returning to his home in Bishop Stone, near Helena, Montana, shortly after dark, and had arrived at a particularly lonely part of the road where the trees almost meet overhead, when his horse showed signs of restlessness. It slackened down, halted, shivered, whinnied, and kept up such a series of antics that my uncle descended from the trap to see if anything was wrong with it. He thought that, perhaps, it was going to have some kind of fit or an attack of ague, which is not an uncommon complaint among animals in this part of the country, and he was preparing to give it a dose of quinine, when suddenly it reared up violently, and before he could stop it, was careering along the road at lightning speed. My uncle was now in a pretty mess. He was stranded in a forest, without a lantern, ten miles at least from home. Feeling too depressed to do anything, he sat down by the roadside and seriously thought of remaining there till daybreak. A twinge of rheumatism, however, reminded him the ground was a little warmer than ice and made him realize that lying on it would be courting death. Consequently, he got up and, setting his lips grimly, struck out in the direction of Bishopstone. At every step he took, the track grew darker. Shadows of trees and countless other things, for which he could see no counterpart, crept out and rendered it almost impossible for him to tell where to tread. A peculiar, indefinable dread also began to make itself felt, and the darkness seemed to him to assume an entirely new character. He plodded on, breaking into a jog trot every now and then, and whistling by way of companionship. The stillness was sepulchral. He strained his ears, but could not even catch the sound of those tiny animals that are usually heard in the thickets and furze bushes at night. And all his movements were exaggerated, until their echoes seemed to reverberate through the whole forest. A turn of the road brought him into view of something that made his heart throb with delight. Standing by the wayside was an enormous coach with four huge horses pawing the ground impatiently. My uncle rushed up to the driver, who was so enveloped in wraps he could not see his face, and in a voice trembling with emotion, begged for the favor of a lift, if not to Helena itself, as far in that direction as the coach was going. The driver made no reply, but with his hand motioned my uncle to get in. The latter did not need a second bidding, and the moment he was seated, the vehicle started off. 
It was a large, roomy conveyance, but had a stifling atmosphere about it that struck my uncle as most unpleasant, and although he could see no one, he intuitively felt he was not alone, and that more than one pair of eyes were watching him. The coach did not go as fast as my uncle expected, but moved with a curious gliding motion, and the wheels made no noise whatever. This added to my uncle's apprehensions, and he almost made up his mind to open the carriage door and jump out. Something, however, which he could not account for, restrained him, and he maintained his seat. Outside, all was still profoundly dark. The trees were scarcely distinguishable as deeper masses of shadow, and were recognizable only by the resinous odor that, from time to time, sluggishly flowed in at the open window as the coach rolled on. At length, they overtook some other vehicle, and for the first time, for some hours, my uncle heard the sound of solid wheels, which were as welcome to him as any joy bells. Just as they were passing the conveyance, a small wagonette, drawn by a pair of horses, the latter took fright. There were loud shouts and a great stampede, and my uncle, who leaned out of the coach window, caught a glimpse of the vehicle dashing along ahead of them at a frightful speed. The driver of the coach, apparently totally unconcerned, continued his journey at the same regular mechanical pace. Presently, my uncle heard the sound of rushing water and knew they must be nearing the Usk, a tributary of the battle, which was only five miles from his house. The forest now ceased, and they crossed the road over the bridge in a brilliant burst of moonlight. About a mile or so further on, the coach halted, and to my uncle's surprise, he found himself in front of a house he had no recollection of seeing before. He got out, and to his horror saw that instead of riding in a coach, he had been riding in a hearse, and that the horses had on their heads gigantic sable plumes. While he was standing, gazing at the extraordinary equipage, the door of the house slowly opened, and two figures came out, carrying a small coffin, which they placed inside the vehicle. He then heard loud peals of mad, hilarious laughter, and coach and horses immediately vanished. My uncle arrived home safely, but the shock of what he had experienced kept him in bed for some days. He learned that a phantom coach, similar to the one he had ridden in, had been seen in the forest twenty years previously, and that it was supposed to be a prognostication of some great misfortune, which, supposition, in my uncle's case at least, proved true, as his wife died of apoplexy a few days after this adventure. End of Part 2 of Chapter 3 of Animal Ghosts